Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Good. My name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't know if any of you are aware, but we did have some elections recently. And in light of that, I would just like to reorient us briefly away from Facebook, away from the news, and back to our purpose as Christians. Jesus is a real king sitting on a real throne with real power and real authority over the earth. We can trust him with our lives, and we can trust him with our country. Soon, we'll be starting the Christmas season. I just want you to remember, remember something about Jesus. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We are Christians, and this means we have hope in this world about what God is doing, even though... You may not always understand what God is doing. We always know why he is doing it. He wants us to know him and make him known in this world. That said, would you please stand for the reading of today's word. This is Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes him, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. You may sit down and we will pray. Today, Lord Jesus, dear God, may we be reminded of who is actually in control of our country. But more importantly, may we be shown who we are giving control of our hearts to. Christ or man. May we reorient around you and your purposes. Father, I know our feelings do not usually change with the flick of a switch, but by the slow and steady work of your Spirit changing what we know and what we believe. Today, I pray that you would work through this passage to change our hearts and bend them back to you, our King. Amen. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about human purpose. This passage is the first passage in our two-week series, Prepare the Way. It falls right before Advent, which is a season of getting excited about the fact that Jesus came to the world and will one day come back into the world. The context of this passage is simple. It is the first gospel that was written. Mark was the first one to write down what Peter wrote about the life of Jesus. And it's a great gospel. It's very simple. It's very quick. The context of this passage is about Jesus. This passage is referencing back 
to the old school, to the Old Testament. First, Mark brings up the beginning of the gospel. So he talks about the good news and the purpose of life. The good news of Jesus Christ, who is, as he calls him, the Son of God. And then he mentions Isaiah, and he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's Malachi. And then the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's Jesus. Now, the person he's talking about, the person he's, talking, he's saying, is this prophet coming forth before Jesus, is John the Baptist. So the question that John poses when he goes out to preach in the wilderness in his funny clothes is, who is Jesus? Mark writes this to us because he believes, and as we know, the truth is that Jesus is God. Now, the world, when you go out and take a survey of your friends of the neighborhood, the world would tell you that Jesus is anything but God. The world will tell you that we are our own masters. The world will tell you that Jesus may have been a good man, but I am in control of my destiny. Now, granted, Jesus was a good man and is a good man, but that is not all that he is. The world knows bits and pieces about who Jesus is, but as Mark endeavors to write down what Peter is preaching about the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did here on earth and what it means for us today, he wants us to know that Jesus is not just a good man, that he is not a kind hippie sitting in a coffee shop drinking lattes, that he is a Lord. And so he quotes from the Old Testament, which bears witness about Jesus. He quotes and he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So we want to look at what does Lord mean? Lord Lordship is an adjective. It's, it's, it's a Greek kuros. It means mighty, principal, ruler. It is he who assumes and exercises power over things. It is an unlimited master and an owner of what he is Lord over. Mark tells us, as does Isaiah and Malachi, that Jesus is Lord over all. The passage I read in my intro talked about who Jesus is. He is preeminent before all things. When we go out into the world and before we were Christians, we fight who Jesus is. Not necessarily because we don't believe it, but because it means that he is our Lord. Now, to believe that Jesus is our Lord is to be a Christian. To believe that Jesus is our Lord means that we die unto ourselves. That means that I am dead and give my life up and Jesus fills me with his life, with his Holy Spirit. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? It means that we are dead to ourselves and to this world. And it means that we have true hope and true purpose. Lordship is anything but neutral. When Jesus is Lord over the earth, it means that it doesn't really matter whether you believe it or not. Because He is Lord, whether you believe it or not. Jesus is Lord regardless of whether you don't believe it, because He is God. Now, I would implore you to believe it. I would implore you to repent of your sins. But, as Christians, we need to acknowledge that even Jesus is Lord, even over those who do not repent of their sins, even over those who hate Him, He still exists as our supreme ruler and master. Now, this lordship doesn't stop at simply a title. He doesn't simply stop as being in the one in control of the world. It goes on to do something for us. So, Mark goes on. So he talks about John. He says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
and all the Judea of the country of Judea and of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So Mark makes the, the point that Jesus is Lord. And then he goes on to say that Jesus does something for us. Not because we've earned it, not because we want it, but because he is Lord, Jesus gives us new life. John, as a forerunner to Jesus, as the one who prepared the way for God's earthly ministry here on earth, John appeared. And he proclaimed a baptism, which was a significant thing in that day, as it is today. It signifies us going down into death under the water, and then coming back up into life as new creations. Now, baptism itself does not do anything except for get you wet and tell people that you are wet. But what it does signify is that God has changed your heart. Baptism, as it was important in that day, is important in our day because it signifies and it reminds us and tells the world that we have been forgiven of our sins, that we are no longer dead to, dead to the world. Dead. Dead. <laughs> but that we are risen in new life to God. That we are dead to the world and alive to God. Whereas before we were dead to God and alive to the world. John appeared preaching the lordship of Jesus because the lordship of Jesus transforms us. You cannot meet a lord over, a the lord over the entire earth and not be changed. If you do, then you don't believe he is lord. He is still something other than what he claims to be. Jesus as lord means he is making us new. He is not done changing us yet. C.S. Lewis talks about fixing broken gutters. He says that when we become Christians, we, we repent of our sins and we accept that Jesus is our Lord. And if we were a house, Jesus would come in and fix the gutters. Obviously, those were broken. He would, you know, put a door up on the front because, of course, a house needs a door. And then instead of leaving because our gutters are fixed and our door is now up, Jesus stays and begins to take down a few walls. He then goes out back and maybe builds a giant, beautiful pergola. He puts in a fire pit so people can come over. He takes down a few more walls and adds on maybe a, a turret. The thing is about becoming a Christian is that when we meet Jesus as Lord, He does something that we don't expect. He starts to reign in our hearts and in our minds as a king. And that king has better plans for us than we expected. We expected Him to come into our life and build, re, refix our cottage a little bit. Kind of get rid of those sins that we knew were there and couldn't really, like, you know, weren't really that fond of, but it wasn't a big deal. Yet what Jesus actually does is he transforms our little cottage into an entirely new building, a mansion. Way better than we ever would have expected. And he does this as Lord over our lives. The world will tell you that you don't need a Savior, that you don't need to be transformed. And even some Christians may tell you that, Jesus is your Savior, but it's okay if He's not your Lord. You can get there. I will tell you that you may not be a Christian unless Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. The world will tell you that sin is a part of who you are forever. Even some Christian counseling, supposed quote-unquote Christian counseling, will tell you that once a sinner, always that sin. Once an addict, and always an addict. Your identity is now a part of what sin you have committed or even what sin has been committed against you. The Bible would tell us different. That when God comes into our lives and we acknowledge Him as what He is, Lord over all creation, including His creatures, He makes us new people. And that includes changing our identity from 
that sin that happened to you when you were a kid or that sin that you committed when you were in college. Jesus heals a person from the inside out in the exact same way that he would rebuild a cottage into a giant castle. He takes down the walls and gives us new structure, new foundation. Well, the world will tell you that we can believe some lies and still be okay. Jesus will tell you, I will never stop telling you the lies you're believing so that you can know truth and hope. The world will tell you that, again, once an addict, always an addict. And the reason is because they don't know how to deal with your sin. The world doesn't know how to deal with the sin that is in our lives that's been committed against us. Yet Jesus does. And as he goes through a process, $10 word, sanctification, he he is sanctifying, making us holy, more like himself. Jesus takes us from death to life, both at the moment of our conversion and then up until the moment we enter heaven. It is an ongoing process of the gospel. It is one that cannot be stopped. When Jesus takes hold of our life as Lord, he begins to transform us. I, he gives us a new life. I, I, I got the chance to obviously first experience that myself. But then I got to experience it with someone else. I, I was working at a YMCA camp in the mountains with a group called the Navigators. I was scrubbing toilets and running a vacuum. And we volunteered, or we volunteered for the YMCA 40 hours a week. And then we worked with the Navigators, a Bible study group, um, after, in our, before we'd work and after we work at the weekends all summer. And what they did was they taught us how to evangelize. They taught us about discipleship. They taught us how to study, read our Bibles, share our faith with others. And so I, I was doing this throughout the summer, and we were taught how to evangelize, so I thought I'd try it. And I met this kid. His name was Mike. Mike had never been outside of Chicago. He grew up in Chicago. He was 16 years old, and he won a trip to Colorado with his school. And so he came for a summer to work for the YMCA. And he had no idea he would meet me. And so I met Mike, and I shared the gospel with him. Funny thing is about that, and we talked about this in our evangelism class this morning, I shared the exact same simple Bible school illustration with Mike that I'd shared with a guy the day before. The guy the day before, his name was Texas. I have no idea what his name was, I forget. But we were friends. I shared the, I shared the illustration with him, and he just looked at me like, cool. I was like, do you have any response to Jesus as your Lord? Dying for your sins, giving you hope? Texas was like, no, nah, I'm good, man. It's cool. So I left it. The next day, I met Mike. And I said, Mike, you're in Colorado. Can I tell you who made the mountains? He's like, I've never seen mountains before. And I was like, let me tell you who made them. And he was like, okay, dude, whatever. And so I told him. I mean, it, there was an age gap. He was about 16. I was about 21. And so he he relented and let me share my illustration with him about sin and repentance and knowing God and having peace and joy. And Mike broke down and cried. Mike repented of his sins. We started reading the Bible together. We read one or two chapters of every book of the Bible and went through the whole thing by the end of the summer. And it was awesome. It was one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. It was the first time I got to disciple a brand new believer into the Lord. And it was a work of the Lord in Mike's heart. And I know that. I know that because of what happened during the summer. Mike was from inner city Chicago, came out to see us, and got a call about halfway through the summer. And I, I came home from work, and we were all staying at these dorms. I, I met up with Mike. I saw him, and I, I said, Mike, what's wrong? He was just crying uncontrollably on the porch. I said, Mike, what's going on, brother? How you doing? What's up? And Mike looked at me, and Mike said, one of my best friends was just shot and killed in a drive-by back home. 
and I just broke. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I've never been in a drive-by yet, lived in the inner, inner city of Chicago. I had no experience in my own life to relate to Mike, except for Jesus. And so I asked him, dude, that is terrible. How are you doing? What can I do for you? And he said, I got a question, man. Like through tears, just bawling as a 16-year-old kid. He said, I, I, I believe Jesus is Lord. I, words out of his mouth. I believe Jesus is Lord. And, and I know I'm saved because every other time, heartbreaking moment, every other time one of my friends has been killed, I just went and got drunk. And I stole cars and I broke into places and I did a lot of stupid stuff. And, and Andy, I just, I don't want to do that anymore. That, I don't want that to be my response to this. And there was, and, and so Mike looked at me and he said, Andy, do I have to forgive the guys that shot my best friend? What do you say to that? The Lord gave me words. He's, I just said, Mike, you know, you've sinned against God in a different way that though your friends who killed your friend sinned. But Mike, yes. Someday, working towards it, you need to work to forgive these guys. Mike had an experience because of a truth. Mike's, Mike's faith was not built on his experience. Mike had, trans, Mike had been transformed by Jesus. Mike had new life. And it was something that no one could take away from him. And it was wonderful. We do not all need those types of tragedies in our lives to accept and repent of our sin and believe that Jesus is Lord. But we do need to know the truth behind those experiences. Mark continues on. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what was happening here was that Mike, as well as these people, heard about Jesus as Lord, repented of their sins, and they were baptized because of the transformation that had occurred in their hearts, minds, and souls. They had been transformed by the gospel, and so they went and got baptized. And they had been transformed in such a way that they were ready to tell other people about it. Why do we know that? Because John was the first one to go and tell other people about it. John, Jesus' cousin, saw Jesus as Lord, obeyed God working in his life, went out to the desert, ate like bugs and honey, which sounds delicious, probably to my one-year-old actually, but... He ate bugs and honey and, and lived in the wild so that he could prepare to tell people about Jesus. It's not an easy thing to tell our friends and our family that they're sinners in need of a Savior. So John t- preached to them repentance. And they went and they repented and they were transformed. And you know what happened after they were transformed? And the same thing that happened with Mike and the exact same thing that happened with John is they began to live loud. They had freedom, friends. I'm not going to begin to describe the movie of Braveheart. I tried to do it with my wife. It just went terribly. But I want you to remember that moment in Braveheart where William Wallace is laying dead, about to die, on the guillotine shelf and was about to get his head chopped off. The one thing that he yelled was not slavery, was not, I regret this, was not, oh no. It was freedom. And he yelled that because he had been transformed. Now, that's historically, you could look that up and figure it out. But it makes my point. When God is Lord of our life, he transforms us. And our mission then changes as well. 
He becomes, he gives us a new Lord, and then he gives us new life. And then in that new life, we have a new calling, a new mission. Now, the world would tell you that your mission is to be successful. The world will tell you that your mission is to raise your kids well. The world will tell you that your mission is to work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor. To do what you want and follow your emotions, follow your feelings. Jesus would tell you that some of those things are not terrible. But when Jesus transforms someone, he makes, not only gives them himself as a new Lord and gives them new life that is transformative, but he gives them a new mission. So, when I I say mission, obviously that word is not in our text, so let me define it. Mission, Google says that one, mission is an important assignment carried out for political, religious, or commercial purposes, typically involving travel. The really funny thing about words is that God made them. God came up with words. And he created the definitions for these words. So, even Google, a very secular, worldly institution, when they define one of God's words, cannot help but get away from what God intends in that word. And we know that because number two in the definition on Google for mission is the vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. God's transformative power in our lives is bred and created into the very words that we speak, and the world can't even try and deny it. Mission is evangelism. It is speaking loudly about your faith. It is going and telling people you don't know and those you do know about the hope that you have and why you have it. But it is not just that. Mission encompasses all of life. Mission encompasses trying to obey the Lord. Whereas when we were Christians, we could not even try because we were dead. But now, as Christians, we have freedom because of jesus perfect life he obeyed perfectly and so now we don't have to worry about obedience but our hearts are transformed because we get to try and obey there's a freedom in that when you know that you cannot fail you begin doing kind of crazy things like preaching like reading the bible with your kids like working harder at your job and telling your boss yeah i i I work hard because god gave us work to do and we should do it well We begin to breed into our lives all the essence of who God is. All of the words that God created that were meant to bring Him glory. We can again use them to bring Him glory as Christians. I want to read you a brief story um, about some guys that lived in the 1500s. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. You can find this in the book Heralds of the Reformation. I'm not going to read the whole book, don't worry. Um, But this is a brief story about two men who acknowledged Jesus as Lord and then were transformed and sent out not into their own mission for their own purposes, for their own life, but for God's. So they had preached the world, they preached the word to the world in England. And the English government at the time hated that. They were a a, a country ruled by the Pope surrogately through the king. And because of that, they could not preach and, and, and read the Bible in anything but its Latin. And so Latimer and Ridley went out and started preaching to the common man in a normal English Bible what Jesus had done for him. And the church, because they felt threatened that normal everyday people should know the truth of Scripture, started to kill people. And the church put then Latimer and Ridley on a stake, and they got them ready to burn. And so Latimer, sitting there, looks at Ridley and says, God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Then they knelt in the dirt and prayed, then spoke some quiet words of comfort to one another, again about to be burned. A priest delivered a sermon accusing Latimer and Ridley of terrible heresies, condemning them to the fires of hell. Two guards strapped the bishops to the stake with a single iron chain, binding them tightly around the waist, and then surrounded them with straw and wood. As the bailiff stepped forward with the torch, Latimer said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England, as I trust that will never be put out. They were about to be burned at the stake. And Latimer looks at Ridley and says, We got them now, man. We're about to win. This is legit. They're going to burn us. And we will be candles that will preach the word unto the world. He had a transformed life. And I tell you, the same spirit that lived in Latimer and Ridley and, were able, and was able to help them endure such terrible hardships lives in those of us who repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as Lord. Now, we may all not, hopefully, burn at the stake. But... We have all been called to submit to Jesus as Lord and live transformed lives on mission as Christians. Essentially, when you become a Christian, you are joining a battle that has already been won, but is not yet over. The battle has been won, but the fight that we are in is not yet over. Jesus won the battle on the cross. He gives us his spirit and hope. He gives us a church to encourage us. To encourage us. He gives us the words of his very own mind to know what he thinks and then he sends us out into a battle that he has already won so today this advent season as we prepare for christmas i would ask you are you on a mission that has already been won or are you or are you on your own mission this mission means that we have a new desire a new boldness about our faith about who gives us that faith this means that we have humility when we sin and when we're wrong This means we have joy when we see God do wonderful things. This Advent season is a season of joy and preparation for what God might do in our lives. And so I would ask you, as much as Latimer and Ridley lit a torch in England to see, help see people, help people see Jesus, will you take up the torch in your own life? Now, it's a little cheesy. We don't even use torches anymore. But I would ask you, Will you take a step to see some of your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors know Jesus? Will you invite them to hear the word of God preached on a Sunday morning that they might have hope? I know it's awkward. I've been there. I've done it. Will you take a step and get to know someone at your office? Invite them over to your house for a friendly meal. I tell you, the world does not know hospitality like Jesus knows hospitality. Will you love people for the sake of them knowing Jesus? And that is an ulterior motive. And it is the best one on the planet. So that they might know Jesus. Today, we're going to take communion. At communion, we celebrate the bread, which was, represents the body, which is broken for us. And the blood, which was spilt on our behalf, is represented by the wine and the juice. Take a moment, quiet your hearts. And if you are a Christian, repent of your sin and, and believe in the hope that we have. And then come on up and take communion. Let me pray for us. Father, we we want to see you transform people's lives. Father, in our own hearts, 
before we were believers, before we had confessed you as Lord and received a new mission, we would lay lay awake at night and cry for change and desire hope and purpose that only you can give us, Father. I do ask you that you would embolden us as a church. Please use New City as a beacon, as a torch in Denver, that all of us may be found in loving relationship with you, Jesus. Amen.